This is Connected by Nutritia, a podcast brought to you by Nutritia Ireland and designed for healthcare professionals only. Hello and welcome to the Connected by Nutritia podcast. My name is Neve McGetkin and I'm delighted to host today's episode, which forms part one of our two-part dysphagia series. So today I'm joined by Fiona Hillen, clinical specialist dysphagia dietitian, currently working in the Southeastern Health and Social Care Trust. Hi Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Hi Neve, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have a chat through this. Me too, and thanks so much for joining us today, Fiona. Before we get chatting about your work in the area of dysphagia, could you tell our listeners a little bit about you and I suppose your journey to becoming a clinical specialist dysphagia dietitian? Um, okay, yeah, that's a good question, Neve. Uh, a lot of people do ask me of how I got to this role because it's quite um, a different kind of role. So um, I trained in University of Ulster and I did my BAM 5 career over in England. I was lucky enough to um, get a rotational BAM 5 job. I got lots of experience in lots of different areas. And then from there, I actually started working in Wales as a band six rotational dietitian. I got lots of experience in lots of specialist areas then, bit of uh, neurosurgery, neurology, um, intensive care, where obviously there's a lot of swallowing problems in all of those patient groups. And then I did things that were absolutely nothing got to do with dysphagia. I did a bit of renal dietetics, actually worked in HIV as well, and a bit of surgical dietetics. And from there, I actually went on to be a stroke specialist dietitian in another trust in Wales. So from there, that's kind of where I consolidated all my um, interest in dysphagia. Um, and that was across the whole trust. I, I worked in the acute setting, but I kind of um, coordinated acute and uh, rehab in community stroke as well. Sounds like you've had a fascinating career to date, Fiona, with exposure to lots of different disease areas and conditions. And it's interesting that you mentioned dysphagia was common amongst many of those very different patient types. That experience as well of coordinating the follow-up care into the community, it must have given you a really great insight into the patient's journey when they leave the acute setting. And I guess that feeds nicely into your current role could you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing now as a clinical specialist dysphagia dietitian? So, yeah, a lot of people do actually ask, how did you become a specialist clinical uh, dysphagia dietitian? And um, basically, um, this was a role that I noticed whenever I was trying to move back home to Northern Ireland. And I thought, oh, clinical specialist dysphagia dietitian, never heard of one of those, but I'll apply and see, see what it's all about. And my experience in all those other areas really helped. Um, but this was actually quite a different role in terms of it wasn't um, quite so clinical. So it's actually more of a um, project based role working in an MDT. So I'm the dysphagia dietitian in the dysphagia support team for the Southeastern Trust. And this, um, all these roles came about from what we call transformation funding. And that's linked regionally to the public health agency. So these rules came about in February 2018. The Public Health Agency published the thematic review of choking and they made recommendations in that review. Um, so to help achieve the recommendations, the business case was co-developed with the PHA and with the trusts regionally to create a Northern Ireland-wide dysphagia service improvement project. This is now known as Dysphagia NI. And the successful bid from that funded dysphagia teams across the region, including my team in my trust, in Southeastern Trust. And so my team is made up of myself, a speech therapist, two dysphagia 
assistance and also a dysphagia team coordinator. So I've been in this role for about two and a half years now, and I really enjoy the work that we can do in the trust, but also the regional networking that I can do as part of this role. There's a lot of shared learning between the trusts across the region, across the different uh, disciplines, and the focus is really on quality improvement. So yeah, some of my highlights so far have been to, uh, delivering regional dysphagia courses, um, to university students and dietitians, as well as contributing to a lot of MDT projects, uh, developing dysphagia menus in our trust um, residential homes. So it's quite broad. There's a lot of training and a lot of development of resources. So it's an interesting post. It's really interesting to hear how those roles came about and absolutely fantastic that dietetic care is such a central part of that team. And actually just last year, the Department of Health in the Republic of Ireland published a new national clinical guideline on nutrition screening and support for adults in the acute setting. And as part of that guideline, it talks about people with dysphagia and the role of different members of the multidisciplinary team in dysphagia care. So really emphasising that collaborative approach as you've done in Northern Ireland. You mentioned as well there that there was part of your role, you've been working on some MDT projects around dysphagia menus. Could you tell us a little bit more about this work? Um, one of our main projects that I worked on as part of this MDT was um, something that we, we've called dysphagia friendly foods. And it started off with catering, SLT, dietetics and the um, staff working staff and the residents in uh, our trust residential homes. So the idea behind the project was to try and pilot moving away from pre-bought in ready-made dysphagia meals to preparing them in-house. So we piloted it in uh, one residential home and we've rolled it out to, um, the, I think it's nine now at this point in our trust. And um, we involved the patients all the way through in the menu planning. So um, we assessed what their intake was before on the pre-bought meals um, versus after um, once they'd been on like a three-week menu cycle and got to try out all the different menu options. And we also looked at their um, anthropometrics, so their weight and body um, BMI changes over a six-month period and their intake and reliance on supplements. So, and we got questionnaires from the patients on their satisfaction pre and post um, implementation. Uh, and we also got it from their carers as well. So um, one that always brings to mind when people ask me is um, a lady who lived in a long-term um, neuro rehab setting. And she um, basically would have eaten one or two spoonfuls here and there of maybe her dessert, but didn't really engage at mealtimes. Um, her husband would come in a few times a week at lunchtime and there was not much engagement between the two of them. Um, once the meals were being prepared freshly, it was like a complete turnaround. She was engaging at mealtimes. She wasn't finishing them off in, in completion, um, be, partly because of her clinical condition, but she was, you know, there were more social interactions with her and her husband um, he just could not commend the catering staff enough and um, she was less reliant then on supplements and also we noticed her weight um, coming up to a healthy BMI. So it was just such a big difference. You know, you could have assumed she had a poor appetite or she didn't like um, the dysphagia meals, but actually it was 
the specifics of what she was being given. It wasn't just, oh, she didn't like being on a texture modified. So once it was fresh and she could smell the food being tasted, she was getting the same meal as her peers. So the project um, aimed to um, have level five, level six and level seven all on the same meal, but just adapted. Um, other residents had anecdotal information as well that was really helpful. They were saying, oh, it, um, I really like the colours. Um, I'm not adding as much salt, you know, so you could just tell that the flavour was there. They were enjoying it a lot more. Um, so that's like what might seem like, you know, it was quite a big project. But if we're translating that into people in their own homes, it's to try and get our confidence in, um, enabling um, patients and carers in their own settings to prepare their own meals and snacks to the point that's comfortable for them. Because if they're relying on ready-made things, they might get fatigued with that. And it's about, you know, having the same meal as the rest of the family, enjoying the whole sensory aspects, the smell of the food cooking, seeing all the bright colours on the plate. Um, so it's just seeing how, even though that was in a, residential quality improvement project how can what we've learned from that be translated into um other settings it really goes to show what can be achieved through that collaborative approach and the project must have been incredibly rewarding from a career perspective being able to see firsthand the impact that your work was having on the nutritional status of your patients as well as the impact that your work was having on things like quality of life and those other really important aspects of eating, the enjoyment of the experience and the social aspects, like as you mentioned, the interaction. We know that people with dysphagia are at high risk of malnutrition and dehydration, but in order for us to optimise nutritional status, it's important that we as healthcare professionals really take into consideration the overall picture and implement patient-centred care plan. Yes, Nick, that's a really good point. Um, I guess the social aspect is one thing that we look at and we're also aware of the link between um, dysphagia and malnutrition and how it's such a vicious circle, especially um, for those that once they are a bit older, they might be losing muscle mass anyway. And then if they have malnutrition on top of that, their muscle mass is going down, which can exacerbate their dysphagia. So it's about us getting in there um, as quickly as possible and assessing all aspects of the patient's care and like you say social aspects is one major thing that comes into play there because a lot of these patients might have um, difficulties in preparing their own meals so they're relying on um, family members or carers to help so we really have to assess the whole picture here like looking at um, access to food access to the right um consistency of food and fluids who's doing that who's preparing it and also um where they're getting it from as well um so yeah the social aspect is a really big thing as um from the preparation of food but also in the enjoyment side of things um so in terms of uh, if people were used to eating as a family or even if they were in a residential setting they were used to eating with their peers how does the dysphagia now have an impact on that? And it's really important for the whole MDT to see it in um, from the patient's point of view to see how we can enhance their, their dining experience really to um, promote as much good nutrition going in as possible. Absolutely, Fiona. You mentioned the who there as well. 
who is preparing the food. So it's really important that everyone is involved and everyone is given that support and education that's required, be it the carers or the care home staff or whoever's involved. You mentioned as well in your previous clinical experience that you often came across people with dysphagia while working in different clinical areas or different disease areas. So imagine for a lot of our listeners that they may not be working specifically in a specialised dysphagia role, but I'm sure many of them do have patients or clients on their caseload that have dysphagia. So given that, what would be your top three tips, I guess, for a dietitian supporting people with dysphagia? Thanks for that question, Eve. I think that's a really um, good one to try and think of three key things. Um, I guess with any area of dietetics, I would say to upskill and keep yourself up to date on the topic area. So um, if we're thinking about dysphagia, um, I'm thinking maybe especially with regards to the IDSI levels. So I guess if you know your IDSI levels, you know how to prepare each drink and food to each level. Um, then you'll feel more confident when you're giving practical tips and examples to your patients, carers, caterers, basically anybody who's preparing the meals and drinks. So um, to help with that, I, I would ask for training on thickening drinks so you can better explain this to your patients and carers. I would ask to be involved in catering audits um, so you can see how they're testing each food to make sure it meets the recommended IDC level. Or if you can't get to that point, maybe even just check in the levels of your own meals at home. So when you're having your own um, dinner, think, oh, how could I do a fork or a spoon test to see what IDC level this is? So I would check out the ITSI website and um, they've got a resources section there and they've got like little audit monitoring sheets to help you see whether it's met each level. And I just think from my, my own experience of doing that, it's really helped me be able to say to somebody, OK, yeah, that would meet that level or here's how you could adapt this certain food to your recommended level. And it's really helped um, with practical examples for the patients. Secondly, I'd say to really dig deep with the detail during your assessments of those living with dysphagia. This will help to embody the like making every contact count and promoting reablement and self-management of the patients. Something which the patient might think is insignificant might have a really big impact on their care. So the devil really is in the detail here. So as we've talked about earlier, some small tweaks and suggestions from you as the dietitian can have some really big impacts on their quality of life. And lastly, I would say to value the power of involving the patient and the MDT. I just think that is key. Um, your SLT will help you understand the swallow prognosis of the patient and their journey. Catering will help you understand options, not only in a clinical setting, but will give you inspiration on what you can suggest to your patients when they're in their own homes. And remembering that the patient and the family are a big part of the team and you can learn so much from them on what it's like to live with dysphagia. So make them as involved as possible and you'll not only enhance their care, but you'll notice improved satisfaction from their point of view. And this will also help you develop as a practitioner, showing you some examples 
um, that work for them in their setting that you can then share with future patients. Thanks, Fiona. Some really helpful advice there. Confidence, I think, is a big part, as you said, and being really familiar with the IDSI levels and the requirements at each level. Upskilling in the area really help us to become more confident when advising on dysphagia-friendly meals and suitable options. And I think as well, your project work really showcases the benefit of involving the patient at all steps of the ways, for example, consulting with patients on the development of menus and that, and also adapting the menu. So not just, I suppose, restricting certain foods unnecessarily, um, but actually just adapting the different meals and that to have a dysphagia-friendly option. You talked about one example as part of the dysphagia-friendly foods project, but do you have any other examples or patient stories on how these tips maybe worked in practice? I've got a couple of other ones that always spring to mind when I'm thinking about how the dietitian and speech therapist can be involved from a fluid point of view. Um, this one was back whenever I worked in Wales and we were um, looking at the different thickeners that patients were on. Uh, we had a lady who was predominantly um, relying on enteral nutrition via a peg for her nutrition and hydration, but she was able to have fluids um, for comfort, um, thickened fluids for comfort. And um, we just happened to um, be doing that as part of her assessment, asking the husband how he was getting on with the thickener. And he just reported that she basically was refusing all thickened fluids. He thought she didn't like it. So we just thought, okay, you know, why don't we try another thickener, different type of thickener? So we moved from a starch-based thickener to a gum-based thickener because they were quite new on the market at the time. This was a complete turnaround. On the starch, she was having a spoonful here and there just to help with her oral hygiene. But whenever she moved on to the gum-based thickener, she was enjoying it a lot more. Her husband found it a lot easier to make and um, the two of them could have cups of tea together. So they had a lot more social interaction. I think she ended up having three to four cups of tea a day, which was just like really nice to see the interaction that they could have at, um, at their tea times. Um, and another um, example of small tweaks with fluid assessments, um, we had a... A lady who was independently um, out in the community and again it was a small tweak to the type of thickener she had really helped her feel more confident when going out for coffees with her friends and um, before she kind of wasn't sure she was mixing it properly um, and then we found a thickener that she could add um, after the fluid had been put into the cup so she felt more discreet being able to do that and it just built her confidence with getting back out into, again, a bit more social normality for her. So, yeah, it just showed that, like, asking all the details and, you know, how do you feel about that? And how, how does that impact your life really meant that you would try and get a workaround for them um, and come up with something together that would actually have an impact on, on their quality of life. And it's really nice to see in the end. Asking that question as a healthcare professional, how does that impact on the person's life? It's just so, so incredibly important. Um, and really, Fiona, I guess as a dietitian, you've really showcased how incredibly central the role of, of dietitian is in, in dysphagia care. And I suppose what dietitians can do to really, really optimise the nutrition and hydration status of people living with dysphagia, 
but also their quality of life, their enjoyment of foods, the normal everyday things, the going for coffee, um, all of the things that maybe some of us do take for granted. So yeah, some really fantastic stories there. And it's really, really lovely to hear how, you know, how your work has benefited your patients. So before we let you go, Fiona, we'll finish up with a few quick fire questions. So number one, if you hadn't trained as a dietitian, what would be your dream job? Um, I actually know this one, which is quite sad, but, um, and I said, every time I see um, this profession, I would love to be a post woman, um, mostly because I would like to be out and about all day. I think um, I've got used to probably being inside too much in lockdown and at a desk. Um, I would love to be the one that gets to walk around rather than drive around. Um, and yeah, I could be completely misrepresenting what they do, but they always look happy and they always seem to be have a smile on their face. And I like being outside and like, it doesn't matter the weather. So yeah, I think I would love to be a postwoman. I definitely was not expecting that answer, but it's a really interesting one. And I guess you're right. This was good on a good day, but then on the rainy days, I don't know, maybe not so good. I love this second question. I think it's really interesting. What is the least expensive but most valuable item you've bought? Um, this one was bought for me. I didn't buy it for myself, but I got this as a Christmas present as one of those little like stocking type presents, not your, you know, you kind of your main item present but I got it about five years ago and have used it literally every day since and you're going to laugh but it is a mermaid blanket you know those ones that you can like climb into and cocoon yourself (laughs) and it's got all the lovely different colors in it and even this week um, where I live has been really hot and even in that I'm in the mermaid blanket just for like a cozy feeling and like I don't know how much it costs but like it can't have cost that much and um yeah I've got the most use out of it than I have out of any item it's like a daily thing and I have to pick a day that's like really good weather that I know I can get it washed and dried I'm like a child with like a safety blanket and um, so I have to get it washed and dried in the same day so I, I don't miss out on it for a day I'd say that's been super handy over lockdown as well. We spent so much time locked inside. So at least you had the comfort of your blanket, your mermaid blanket. And to <laughs> yeah. up, the, the indoor dining is returning soon. Um, what restaurant meal have you missed the most over lockdown? Um, my husband is actually a really good cook. So I've been really lucky in that things that we maybe missed, like just take away a pizza and things like that. He has started making at home, which is great. So being spoiled, Lovely. but it is nice to get like a change of scenery as well, you know, and um, there is a restaurant local to us in um, our local town called Newcastle. Um, and the restaurant, it's more of like a treat restaurant. You wouldn't go there like every week week or anything um it's uh got a a guy he was actually on the great british menu so he's like really into using the ingredients in like innovative ways and he does things like that would be suitable for dysphagia like foams and purees and he's all about using the whole um product so he doesn't waste anything he's big into foraging like the local area and getting local produce so that is top of our list for um, whenever we can um, head out again. Sounds incredible. And it's really, really about that experience, not just the food, as you said. So Fiona, thank you so much for joining us today. And I think our listeners will have got a huge amount out of that conversation, reflecting back on your three key takeaways around, you know, upskilling and not being afraid to, to really get stuck in. 
digging deep in our patient assessments. And lastly, then I love this one is around really involving the patients and their families and their carers in, in their management plan. You provided us with some fantastic insights into, you know, through that project work, just how important the role of a dietitian is in that dysphagia MDT. And I suppose the success story there for you around um, really optimizing patient care. And finally, Fiona, then, if any of our listeners are looking to follow you on social media, is it okay for us to share your Twitter handle? Yes, um, I'm not on there that much, but yet please feel free to follow me and then I'll hopefully get a bit more active on there. (laughs) Perfect. So you can find Fiona at at Fiona underscore Hillen, that's H-I-L-L-E-N on Twitter. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. This is Connected by Nutrition podcast brought to you by Nutrition Ireland and designed for healthcare professionals only.